Hey, welcome to Simply Faithful, your place for Christian conversations without the hype. My name is Eric Tunches. I'm the pastor of Grace Central Church in Omaha, Nebraska. And I'm Gray Ewing. I am the pastor of Ascension Church of Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Here on Simply Faithful, it is our hope to just start conversations about God and following Jesus that you can continue in your lives and with your friends and around tables where you gather. Thank you for joining us, friends, and do leave a rating and review if you can. It really helps us get the word out about this show. I want to make one other note logistically, which is that, Gray, we're recording kind of at a different time than we usually do, although I don't know that we actually have a usual time. We should probably get on that. But in case anyone hears a little bit of noise far in the background on my mic, it's because there is a homeschool orchestra using the church building where I am recording uh, right now. And I don't think we'll be able to hear any of the orchestral music, but there might be a kid or two running, screaming somewhere in the background. Hopefully it'll be mostly cut out, but just thought I'd mention that. It might improve the show a little bit. You never know. Add some drama. Now everyone who's listening is going to feel this tension of just waiting for the moment when someone with an oboe crashes and falls in the hallway outside my office. <laughs> with that said, Gray, today what I want us to jump in and talk about is sort of navigating this reality that is just true of our world. And in some ways, it's always been true, but it's increasingly true. And that is that we live in this era that is deeply divided and deeply contentious, where people have really strong opinions about things and where it's harder and harder and rarer and rarer for people to be in relationship with those that they disagree with. And there is all kinds of literature about that in our culture. That's just your opinion that that's a problem. I don't I don't have that opinion. I don't I don't think we should even talk about this. What why, why do you get to choose the topic today? Uh because we take turns and actually technically it was your turn, but you told me to go ahead and do it. <laughs> There's all kinds of literature in terms of the world. People talk about polarization and you can see all kinds of stats about how an increasing number of Americans think not just that they disagree with the other side, but that the other side is evil or bad for the world. There's all sorts of literature, too, about how people are sorting geographically, sorting in online communities so that they rarely have personal relationships and interactions with people that disagree with them. Obviously, politics is one of the big ways that this is true, but it's true in other ways, too, in terms of things like education, in terms of cultural beliefs and convictions. I think maybe part of just the reality of our world is that people are more and more with people that are like them and agree with them. And that is a tension that is also really felt in the church. It is a very hard thing pastors often talk about today, especially since 2020 and the outbreak of COVID. There's a lot of stuff written about stresses that pastors feel because of divisions culturally and politically and on other issues within their congregations. But that's not new. It's always been a reality in a given group of Christians that are gathered together that you see people with different opinions, people that sometimes strongly disagree with each other. There's fights and conflicts and debates. And that can be about things like theological topics. That can be about those same cultural things that we mentioned. That can even be about dumb stuff, like how to decorate a sanctuary or whether you should listen to a certain kind of music or something like that. But that's just a reality, that we live in communities of faith. But there's a lot of tension and division. And so I just want us to talk about how we think about and navigate those debates and those realities as Christians. This is probably a softball opening question for you, but have you had to deal with some of those divisions in your work and ministry in the church? 
Yeah, that's happened, Eric. It's happened before in our church and uh, it continues to happen. And I do think it is a wider phenomenon than just uh, this cultural moment, you know, produces some things that are uniquely hard, I think. And yes, division has always happened in the church, but I do think it's worse in some ways. Uh, also, I just want to put a little pin in something that I suspect we will uh, dive more into as we go. But I think you pitched this at the beginning as opinions on things. But of course, what is an opinion? There are other things as well, just like the word convictions or, uh, you know, sometimes people have opinions like that are more broadly based and it's like, that's what I think. And then sometimes people are looking at scripture and they're saying, this is what it says. And yet it's something that people have debated. And so there's a difference between just saying, I have an opinion on this and then I have a conviction about this. And then we can't be in the same church together And then you can't be in the church at all. Those are all different gradations on a a sliding scale of of matters of importance. That's right. And I'm kind of using opinion broadly. We're going to get to that in a minute. We do need to talk about what are the different ways that Christians disagree and how do we think about that. But first, we should just note that with some nuance of stuff that we're going to discuss later, there is a really generally strong call for us to be united with each other as Christians. And that's a lot of why we feel this tension. It would be one thing if scripture was just like, oh yeah, just you do your thing and I'll do my thing and we don't need to worry about each other. But a lot of the tension that I think we rightly feel is that we are called to unity. Jesus praying over his disciples in John 17 very famously gives this incredible prayer for the unity of the church where he prays that we would be one just as the Father is in him and he is in the Father So we would be one, which is crazy, right? Our unity is supposed to be the way that within the Trinity, the persons of God are united. And he says out of that, so that as you do that, the world will believe that I have sent you, which is to say it's also a big part of our mission and testimony in the world. Yeah, it's so important, Eric. And I think that even the way that we talk about it, sometimes we do talk about it like an ideal rather than a command of scripture. The scriptures command the unity of God's people and demonstrate it and pray for it. It's not something that would be nice if it happened. It is supposed to be pursued just like holiness, just like, you know, purity. It is something that's hard, but must be accomplished by the people of God. And there's just a lot of scripture that talk about this, Uh, the goodness of it. Psalm 133, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. I think right before that, it says, or right after that, it says that it's so good that it's like oil in the beard of Aaron or something like that. So uh, that's how good it is. It's good. Which is a good thing. It is. Having oil in the beard is a good thing in that culture. And that's the view. That's the the goodness picture that's put in front of us in scripture. Yeah. And that's not a command. I'll just give you a command. Ephesians chapter four, Paul says that I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. An asterisk, because that's huge. People use that first verse to say, well, you need to walk in the manner worthy of which you've been called. And they mean by that moral purity, which is good. But if you keep reading, he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So like a core moral command for Christians, part of walking out what it means to be a Christian. And one of the central kind of tenets of it is that sort of unity and humility and patience and seeking peace. It's interesting there that he also talks about eagerness to do it, right? Which is that it's not just that it should should happen, but there actually should be an energy back towards it eager to maintain that that unity. And we could keep going on that. I don't know. I think hopefully most people recognize that call. But here's what's important that I think it's missed in that discussion is that I think people on both sides of certain debates in the church 
tend to pit unity over against caring about the truth of scripture. And so they have this sense that there's this call to truth and theological accuracy and moral obedience. And then there's this call to unity and to peace. And that those things are sort of at odds with each other or separate from each other. But the truth is that unity is a theological moral command in scripture. And so you can't, on the one hand, call for it without recognizing that it's that truth is important because it's just a truth of scripture. But at the same time, you also can't care about truth. You can't be committed to what the Bible teaches and stuff if you're not committed to unity. And I think there are a lot of times where people who divide within the church, it's them choosing to prioritize some other truth over against this very clear, pretty central truth of scripture. And that actually, I think, sheds a very different light on what's going on when people do that. And that's not even mentioning, Eric, the fact that not one of us has the corner on the truth, right? We, we feel that way in the moment, but the truth, as you mentioned, is not something that can be contained in one kind of statement or one kind of perspective at all times, but also we're not reliable enough to know that this is a moment where we should always divide. I mean, there are clear examples. We're going to get to that. But barring those clear examples, we should, we should self-guess and self-doubt how much of the corner of the truth we actually have. A quote that I always like to bring up in unity discussions, because I think there are some people that are really wary of it and think that you must be kind of getting wishy-washy if you want to talk about unity and unity, even when we have different beliefs about certain things. So let me quote John Calvin, who's one of the OG reformers and, you know, a cranky enough guy, certainly cares about the truth. But he, he talks about unity a number of times. But one of my favorites, he says, Among Christians, there ought to be so great a dislike of division that they may always avoid it inasmuch as it lies in their power, that there ought to prevail among them such a reverence for the ministry of the word and the sacraments that wherever they perceive these things to be, there they must consider the church to exist. Nor need it be of any hindrance at some points of doctrine are not quite so pure, seeing that there's scarcely any church which has not retained some remnant of former ignorance. And so I love that because he says we should love um, unity because we're called to it, you know, and be super hesitant to divide. We should honor the diversity of churches anywhere that the word is preached. We should look at and recognize their brother. And we shouldn't be bothered by the fact that there's differences of doctrine or tensions of beliefs, because like you said, we all to some extent have to recognize that uh, there's not any church that has corner on it, or at least we shouldn't have this sort of certainty that we're right about everything that causes us to look down on others. Yeah, and I think you've mentioned it before on the podcast before about, you know, if, there, if there's a hundred things that a church does, you know, or could do that no church is hitting a hundred, very few are hitting 50, right? There's probably like 25 things that we're doing well, and then like 25 that we're doing okay, and then 25 that we're barely doing, and then 25 we're not doing at all, something like that. I think that's 125, so don't check my math on that, but... No, that was a hundred. Okay. I was wondering if you were going to get the last one or if you were just going to list 75. <laughs> right. Oh, man. But it's very easy to go into another church setting and say, well, here's what's wrong. This is challenging to me. I mean, I went to a church service recently. It wasn't really a church service. It was a chapel. And I went in thinking, I am not going to, I'm not going to be that guy that sits in the back with my arms crossed. I am not going to critique everything. I'm going to enjoy being there. I'm going to see what the spirit is doing. And I failed. Uh, it was so hard for me to sit through. <laughs> I did not like so many things that happened in it. And I couldn't resist even just joking with a few people afterwards about things. And that was not a move of, of the spirit towards, towards unity. And so it's extremely hard to be self-conscious enough 
to know when you're being disunifying versus feeling like you're doing something else like preaching the truth or like reassuring someone that you understand what they think or, you know, any number of things that might help you kind of weasel away from unity. Because you mentioned it earlier, and we probably shouldn't go too long without making some distinctions. Let's talk about kind of orders of beliefs and how they would interact with the Bible's call to unity. And what I mean by orders of belief is that it does seem to be the case within scripture that there are things that you do divide over and things that you don't. And so, for example, if you read the book of First Corinthians, which I preached through a little while back, you find on the one hand that Paul says about things like the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus, in fact, that you should divide over those things, that if somebody comes and denies those things, then they're not a Christian, and so you shouldn't be in Christian fellowship with them. But in that same letter, he says about other things, like the way that han- people handle certain spiritual gifts, or this debate going on about meat sacrificed to pagan idols within the Corinthian church, that they should not divide over those things, but rather seek unity in the spirit and love. So how do we think about which beliefs go into which buckets, Gray? Well, acknowledging the buckets exist, I think is important to start with. And I think that this can go too far. We have at times made such a big deal about, well, this is core and this is not core that we don't talk about important things. And we'll, we'll unpack that later. It can, it can go too far, but you have to acknowledge that there are buckets. <laughs> you have to say some things are in and some things are out. And maybe we could just start with that. Like, what what are the things that are in? You know, the first things that come to mind are doctrinal in nature. So they're truths about the Christian faith that are found in the Apostles' Creed that we need to hold on to and resist any forces that would try to uh, change them or deviate them. So the resurrection is the one core central truth. The, the bodily resurrection of Jesus is something that would be in the core. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, our faith is pointless without the resurrection. So if something is pointless in one in one church and it is a central thing in another, that's a reason for division. Yeah, those core things, you do see that reasoning in scripture oftentimes. Things like what you mentioned where Paul says these are of first importance or elsewhere scriptures, for example, talk about how do you recognize the spirits that, fr- that are from God? And it's not that they get everything right, but it's that it's the person who comes proclaiming the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he's God and that he rose again from the dead. I do think there's also certain moral things that probably belong in that core, and this gets a little bit trickier because I think it's neater when we have doctrinal discussions, but certainly there's things like a sort of Ten Commandments and call to love foundation in scripture that are also treated as core, and if somebody denies or abandons those sorts of things, that there's a a need to divide from them, dividing out from people, for example, living in unrepentant idolatry or sexual sin in scripture is a thing that's commanded in the New Testament. There's all the other beliefs, though, we should acknowledge, because the problem is, most of the time, I don't see churches splitting over those issues. And if they are, something's usually gone terribly wrong earlier on, if they're splitting over, like, whether Jesus rose from the dead. Instead, it's another set of beliefs. And this is where, traditionally, and I think justifiably, people try to make another distinction. And I use this distinction, acknowledging that it's imperfect. And that's between beliefs that sort of define different communities of faith, And then convictions that different Christians can have while sharing a community of faith. And that is to say that there are some basic things about like, how do we govern the church and how do the sacraments work and how do we understand church membership and how do we big picture kind of understand the way the Bible fits together and some some basic theological principles and stuff. And it's very difficult to be like a local church or even a denomination of churches if you have foundational disagreements about those things. And so you have that set of beliefs that Christians do divide over, 
But that is not the same thing as dividing over the core. That defines different communities of faith, but it's fine too. And I know many Christians who worship in a church that doesn't share all of those kind of level of beliefs and are able to still live in unity because of the core. But it's just true that like my Roman Catholic brother who thinks that the magisterium of Rome and the Pope rightfully lead the church and me who don't probably can't run the same church together because that disagreement is just going to foundationally put us at loggerheads. And then there's a bunch of other beliefs about other theological ideas, about life choices, politics, education, all that stuff. Baptism. Yeah. And well, and typically we'd want to say the last circle or last level of beliefs is the level where even within the local church, we really want to encourage some amount of diversity and really honor that diversity. But I think you alluded to this tension earlier. People hear that and some people always say, okay, but aren't we supposed to try to be biblical and shouldn't we care about those things? So what do you think of that? Yeah, I think that there is some level of division within the church that makes sense. So don't take that quote out of context and post it somewhere (laughs) because as opposed to John 17, but there is a level of, I'm not someone who decries at every turn the fact that we have a denominational system, for instance. So denominations are not on the face necessarily evidence Profasha that the that division has taken over the church. It's that people have used some of that diversity within their belief systems, within their experiences, and and honestly, in different parts of the world to emphasize different things that makes up kind of the beauty of of that diversity expressed. And so I would actually want to start with the positive saying it's a good thing that Christians have different convictions based on the scriptures. It is. I don't know if I this is where it gets really messy. I would want to be pretty cautious about that discussion, and here's why. Because on one level, I think every division in the church is regrettable, should be looked at as sort of tragic, because the hope would be that we could work through those things in the unity of the faith and remain in communion with each other. But I do think part of what you recognize, there's a sort of realism about biblical ethics that recognizes that because the world is broken, then you can operate within that brokenness in certain ways that are permissible. So while I would say those divisions at the root were something tragic or are something tragic, they also are real things that exist in the church today. And I don't think it's a failing or sin for us to um, to operate within them. And frankly, I don't think there's a way not to operate within them. Maybe I'll also jump in and say it really does matter the use of the word division too, right? So that is a negative word. You, you know, you even get this when you, churches split in some kind of way. You know, sometimes a church plants another church. That's a positive word, right? We planted, like we we grew so much that we planted another church. Sometimes you split the church. You hear that word split. It's like, okay, there was obviously some kind of division with the church. Some people went this way. Some other people went that way. And then we have this beautiful third way, right? That churches are sometimes splanted, uh, which is to say that there was some division and it led to what is now being, you know, pictured as a beautiful thing of planting a church. I don't know if I would call that beautiful necessarily. <laughs> Certainly in the midst of it, it's no. not the most beautiful thing in the world. <laughs> That's how it's described. Yeah. Is that it's this beautiful it's this beautiful third way. Well, we just wanted to go and plant a, a new congregation to really focus on what matters, you know. So uh so anyway, my point is division is one word that we're using, but another is just different people. It's not that, you know, if we go to China or Japan or something and there's the church look different than ours, that's evidence of division necessarily. It could just be evidence of the application of the truth. It doesn't have to start from a negative place. 
necessarily is my point. Yeah, and it is worth noting there that those sorts of divisions that you're thinking of, it's possible to have real unity even across and with within the context of those divisions. And so I have dear friends that do ministry in denominations and churches and with theological convictions that are different than mine. Here in both of our cities, we would look around and see lots of churches that we can work together with for the kingdom that are different from ours. Nah. <laughs> well, I I guess Omaha at least has some other Christian churches, Gray. I don't know about Phoenix. <laughs> no, kidding. Just making good radio here. But, but we can definitely have that sort of unity. That said, I do also think it's important to stress that as much as possible, I do think scripture would want to encourage us to stay in communion with each other within those tensions as much as we're able to. There's, there's maybe a personal component there, and there is a like spiritual leading component that I don't want to remove. What I'm thinking about, especially in this discussion, is stuff that kind of is in the third bucket or the third level that we talked about, which is those opinions about politics, about culture, about parenting and child rearing and things like that. Because I can't think of many situations. Now, now sure, I guess in your scenario, a church might like plant a church and they might kind of gravitate in different directions culturally. And that's sort of fine. But I can't think of a scenario where I would say that it's good for two Christians who are in fellowship and communion only because of cultural differences to then lose that communion. That doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. And part of that is that it, both parties are involved. And there might be times where one person does want to live in unity and just can't because the other person makes it impossible. But I do think generally the pressure of scripture would encourage us to stay together in friendship, in community, and even in local churches that have those different opinions. I want to just touch on one thing you said, Eric, and I don't want to put you on the spot but I kind of do want to put you on the spot because this is where some of the the real rub is. You mentioned offhand like politics, for instance. Of course, it's pretty easy to do that to say this is a place where people have a lot of opinions. But of course, the New Testament is political. When we're talking about politics, we're not just talking about should we spend 500000 or a million dollars extra on education this year, which would clearly be one of those you know, this is better or this is worse, and I have an opinion about it. But we're also talking about visions of the good life, right? That that from the core, these are the convictions that drive people to lead in certain ways. And that gets into theology. It gets into, you know, visions of, of what we think the, the scriptures teach and what we want to support. So it can't be as simple as just saying, politics is in the realm of, of personal opinions or, or even convictions, there's something going on there. How do you delineate, like if somebody were to come to you and say, like, can I support this person or, uh, or vote for this person or whatever it may be, and they have a different vision for the good life of Christianity, wh wh which bucket do you put it in? Let me just briefly mention a couple answers, and we can follow these if you want, because I think this is actually a good but complicated discussion. So one, it's important to say that at none of these levels are we saying that the Bible doesn't speak to these questions. Um, it does speak to these questions, and we're not even saying that you can't be wrong. In fact, I mean, my assumption is that when there's that debate within the church, at least one of the two parties is incorrect. It might be that both of them are incorrect, but they can't both be right, and God does care about that stuff in the world. But that said, there's some important counterpoints. So first of all, let's just talk about humility. A big part of humility as Christians and in the church needs to be owning the fact that not all things are equally clear, not just in scripture, but also in the world. And one of the easiest ways to recognize that clarity as a pastor is for me to say how much of a given opinion that I have is something I can clearly say from scripture, and then how much of that opinion 
is requiring me to also hold opinions about other things. So, for example, within the realm of politics, you are obliged to say that Christians ought to care for the poor and that the state ought to do justice to the poor and not mistreat or exploit them. And those are just clear biblical things. You you can't escape from, from those teachings. But questions of how exactly that looks, going well beyond even questions of like $500,000 versus a million dollars or whatever, but like, is government assistance and wealth redistribution a good method to help the poor, a bad method to help the poor? Or maybe even is it like good in cir- certain circumstances and not as good in others? Like how strong should the social safety net be? All of that stuff. It's not that the Bible has nothing to say about that, but it's that a lot of my opinions about that are being shaped by my judgment calls about economics, my judgment calls about the world, my judgment calls about just how human psychology works and how people are wired, my experiences and people that I've known, right? Like, is the person that I have in my head, this person that I knew who was like a single mom who was working three jobs trying to help her kids? Or is my image in my head some like single dude who's smoking pot on the couch all day and, you know, wanting government money? Like all of that muddies those discussions. And so it's not that the Bible doesn't speak to it, but it's that humility requires me to recognize that those opinions consist of a lot of different judgment calls involving a lot of different areas, most of which I'm not a specialist in, and a number of which I could be wrong about. And also that there is a gap of time and location and specificity of the system that has to be overcome. So in other words, it's not an easy thing to translate the laws of Israel even into the New Testament. There there are scholars who do that, right? Now to take the Old Testament and the New Testament and modern America, it takes a lot of work to, I'm not saying it can't be done, but it's not something that you just grab a verse from the Old Testament and then build everything of your political identity off of that. I guess I'm just going to wade into the really controversial stuff, but let me try to make it concrete so that we can talk through these things. There are political issues that are closer and farther than from things that scripture speaks to. I've read a few Christian politics books that try to make it all party line in one position. I remember, do you remember those voting guides and (laughs) you'd get in church about candidates that aren't technically telling you how to vote while they're telling you how to vote? And I remember just looking at those and it's like endorses deregulation of markets and endorses like guns for everybody. And, you know, and that's said it there as like biblical principles that you're supposed to think about voting. And I'm like, I don't think that scripture is super clear about those things. But I do think scripture is clear, for example, about the fact that unborn human beings are human beings and that it's murder. It's morally wrong to kill a human being because they bear the image of God, just kind of period, which is part of why the church is long felt pretty comfortable taking that sort of position on those things. But, and this is where maybe a few listeners might get angry at me, I can't, I don't think as a pastor, tell you that that position is so overwhelming that if you really think that the party that holds it is morally evil in a bunch of other ways, that you are therefore obligated to vote for that party anyway. Like, I I, I don't think that I have that right, because that's actually a more complicated question. But you do need to preserve that ability to speak into it, because there are those issues. I mean, Southern slavery was a good example of that in our nation's history, right, where Part of the failure of the church was not saying what scripture said about man-stealing and about the image of God being inherent in all human beings and the the multiracial, every tribe and tongue and nation vision of the people of God in scripture. Yeah, there's the not necessarily giving your vote to that. And there's also the abstaining from vote. You know, there's there's options within that, right, that Christians have open to them and should think through seriously. And and yet we should recognize that at the same time, there is a pull towards middle of the roadness in Christianity today that 
sometimes makes us lean one way and punch the other way, you know, and that could be in either direction. So we need to be equal opportunity, both offenders and, and also leaners. So in other words, if we grant something on the left, you know, politically speaking, we should grant the same thing on the right. If it's a, if it's an open thing, if we grant something on the right, we should open it on the left. And so it's not a, it's not the wishing washiness of, you know, you can make any vote matter. Some votes in theory would be wrong votes, but it gets hard. But this is the whole point of having a call to unity that exists in tension. Because yeah, I think that you're right that what a lot of people confuse is that unity means moving towards the center. And so the problem in your church is that if you have like a strong Republican and a strong Democrat, they need to like change their political views to become more centrist. And that's not that's not biblical unity either. Biblical unity is for two people to be able to say, we disagree about this topic. And it's a topic that matters enough that I think you're actually doing damage to yourself or the world. But we have Jesus in common, and that compels us to live in unity with each other, even though I think that you are wrong, and that that wrongness has real consequences for the world. And I think that second part is really key, right? You can actually be in unity with people and think that what they're doing is wrong for the world. <laughs> you know, in, in some ways, not on the level of, hey, yeah, you're worshiping another god. But on the level of right. the other things that we mentioned, yeah, that's that's the hard but true thing. It is. And it's just hard because what we don't have in the Bible is a set of case-by-case workings out of every situation that we find ourselves in. And so inevitably, Christians are going to disagree. And I'll just take, a, take an example. Let's do whether or not Christians can drink alcohol in moderation, right? You have two people kind of that you imagine that are on the far sides of that. And one person thinks that if you say yes to that question... You're opening the door to drunkenness and alcoholism and people sliding into addiction and destroying their families. And on the other side of that, you think you have a person that thinks that you're opening the door to legalism and Phariseeism and worship of the law rather than God, and that you're setting people up to just hide their addictions and damage their families because of that. And I'm saying that, like, you've got to be able to have those two people and say, like, one of you may well be right. And if you're right, that means the other person's really wrong. But that if you divide over that and over every other thing, what you are saying, in essence, is that there is really no situation in which we're called to be united in Christ, in which we're called to kind of seek peace with people that we disagree with. If, if that's a real calling for us, then we have to figure out how to move to a place where we can say, I can live in unity with you, even though we really disagree. And also, like, in all of this, I'm assuming that people are, as they're able to, dialoguing about these topics. I'm also not assuming that they just kind of bury their head in the sand, but that they're really talking with each other about it and trying to grow in compassion for each other. But yeah, that's that's the kind of vision I have for unity, when, I think, when I think about it in the church. It's like sometimes we picture unity in the scripture and think that they're not really thinking about this issue that I'm thinking of. But if you're a decent reasoner, if you if you're somebody who can argue or write something or like articulate a position, you can show why anything matters, right? Right. Paul is not unaware of that. He has matters of first importance himself, you know, and he has things that he sometimes says, I say this to you, this is what I'd prefer, you know, these types of things, even in the scriptures, which is be another discussion. But obviously, they knew that the things that you would not be unified over when when they wrote these statements in the scripture would be things that mattered. And so you can't sidestep it by saying, well, this just is really important to me, or this is, if we don't do this, then this will happen or that kind of thing. You can't skirt unity on the on that ground. Yeah. Let me just say too, that's a good segue into something that I think about this. I think about a lot. When I ask 
what are the things that it's hard for me to be in unity with somebody about when we disagree? And again, I don't mean gospel things. I don't even really mean core theological things. I mean, things that we would say are kind of matters of convictions that Christians disagree about. Because there are certain things there. I'm not going to say which ones. But there are certain things that are just actually very hard for me to, to be in unity with people that have certain opinions or endorse certain views that my heart wrestles with that. I think most of the time that's actually revealing what things are idols for me. I think that most of the time it's revealing things that I've elevated too close or even above the worth of Jesus and the cross and the people of God as his body. And so often I think it's actually our idolatries that are being exposed when we have those sorts of struggles. It could be and very likely is. And I think that's an excellent question to ask. I do want to say, though, we've been talking a lot about the importance of this and what the scripture says. But another example from the scripture would be Paul and Peter, you know, disagreeing over uh, whether Peter should eat with the Jews only. And that was a situation that's in Galatians chapter two, where it wasn't a theological thing like a doctrine stated, but it was an action that Peter was doing that revealed something. And Paul was able to confront him to his face about that. Now, you know, we have every evidence that Peter repented of that. And so they lived in unity. But like, let's imagine, you know, that he didn't or whatever. Would that be something that he was wrong? I opposed him to his face. You know, like that's what Paul says. Yep. You know, so take an issue like putting an American flag in your worship service, having an American flag at the front of your sanctuary, which many, many, many churches do. And I would personally have a very hard time being a pastor of a church that had just an American flag, you know, at the front, just to name a specific issue. I can articulate why that's a gospel issue if I needed to. Like if I needed to get down to it and say like, this is down to the level of where our identity lands. But clearly I'm not going to say that all these churches in America who have flags at the front, even though it is an action that they're doing, are somehow that far gone or something like that. So anyway, just an, another test case to put in there. I'm glad that you got a controversial one in there too, so that I'm not the only one people might be frustrated with. The thing about Paul and Peter is that their debate in some ways exemplifies what it looks like to disagree within the bonds of unity. Because what Paul does not ever do is deny Peter's apostlehood, you know, or his Christianity. And in fact, what's interesting about that specific question of how Jews and Gentiles are supposed to eat together and live together in the church, in Acts 15, you see Paul go submit that issue to the apostles as a whole, even though he clearly has opinions about it, to kind of seek the unity and consensus of the church as he tries to do it. You can talk about Peter, but there's also this division between Paul and Barnabas in terms of disagreeing about how to carry out the missionary journeys, and they part ways, and it seems that there is real hurt feelings there. The tension I feel here is that even though that happens, and even though it's clear that Paul has great frustrations with Barnabas and his decisions in his letters, it never seems to be the case that Paul tries to claim that Barnabas isn't a Christian, or that he doesn't bear a real affection in his heart for him, and they are ultimately reconciled and reunited. And that's where I would just say that there are times that we will live with some amount of disunity with people. That's unavoidable, I think. And like I said, I mean, to really live at unity is something that requires both parties to be engaged. There are times that it might just be impossible to do that without parting ways to some extent. But I do think it's a matter where as much as we can, we want to seek unity. So for example, let's say I've had friends wrestle with this before who believe that you should baptize infants. And they start attending a church, not just that doesn't baptize infants, but that won't let them become members because they were not baptized as an infant. And the church is like, we, you know, you need to be rebaptized in order to be a member. And that violates kind of what they believe about baptism. That's a real tension point. And I always try to give people freedom <laughs> as they wrestle with that. But it might be that that person reaches a point where they say, man, I want to be united to this church, but I feel like 
they just won't let me. And so I might have to end up moving somewhere, somewhere else and become a member somewhere else. But that's not because they want to live in disunity with the people. And as they do it, they would hopefully still be gracious and gentle and considerate of those people and, you know, and honor, honor them, all of that stuff. Like there's ways to live in unity while recognizing the complexities of navigating those differences. But that's different, I think, from just saying like, you are bad, you are someone that I'm just not going to have fellowship with because of that. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think we should land this plane, Eric, and talk about just a couple of ways that we can promote unity and then get to what's good. Sure. So in everything we've been saying, let me just name one thing. I don't know that this actually counts as practical, but this is the most important thing to say, which is that in scripture, the call to unity is always a call to unity in Jesus. And that doesn't just mean that we agree about those core beliefs, although that's part of what it means. But it also means that Jesus is the force that compels us to unity, that we see him. We look at someone and say, man, Jesus died for me. And that is my hope in salvation. And Jesus died for this person. And that's their only hope of salvation, too. And because of that, we are united because we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who's in all and through all, as Paul talks about it. And so it's looking to Jesus and to the hope we have in him that's ultimately the thing that should draw us towards unity and that we need to remind ourselves of when we're so feeling these divisions or disagreements. Yeah, one thing that I just want to encourage us all towards is in our sensitive environment where language is used often as a thing that is harmful and oppressive or any number of things. Now, language can be harmful and it can be abusive and can make people unsafe. But let's not go with the with all of the lines of thought that are out there and saying anytime somebody th- thinks something differently than I do, even if it's on an important issue, that that means I'm in an unsafe position. If we are truly united around Jesus Christ, and we're all found in him, having our lives found in him, then we are as safe as we can be, right? And somebody else challenging what we think about something shouldn't be, shouldn't lead us to the level of like, well, I have to now be away from that person because they're different than me. Yeah, I would also add that one of the things we need to recognize about biblical ethics and the virtues they seek to instill is that a lot of those virtues are really essential to living in unity and should cause us to grow in unity. So things like humility, things like gentleness, things like patience. You go read the list of the fruit of the Spirit, even things like self-control, frankly. While it might not sound like it's necessary to live in unity, if you've ever had somebody saying something that you really disagree with, and you've had to just bite your tongue, like they all have this real relational dimension. And so it's very important for us when we think about living in unity to really appreciate the value of those things and to not buy into the way our culture often lionizes cruelty, meanness, contempt, snark, things like that as if they were relational virtues instead. Another virtue that really helps with this is being quick to listen, slow to speak. So challenging our tendency to get our words out or our perspective out first before we actively listen to others leads to the possibility of disunity. And of course, if somebody does that, then you have the possibility of also responding back to them in anger and escalating it. But if everybody took a second to say, I'm going to put this as a question rather than a statement, I'm going to, you know, say something that I'm wondering rather than something that is true, you know, I'm going to pitch it differently. I'm going to look around the room before I say what I'm going to say, knowing that people have different experiences and backgrounds and that what I say could potentially be harmful or misunderstood, uh, these types of practices. Yeah. And I'll just add one more practical thing before we leave this behind. And that is also be really careful about your media consumption 
and how your media consumption shapes your view of people and of their opinions. One of the biggest reasons I think that we live with the sort of cultural divisions that we have is that most people are getting their summary of other people's views from the people that agree with them rather than from the people that they actually disagree with. That's like, that's Twitter in a nutshell oftentimes. That is pundits and television and all the ways that people kind of often consume information and thinking about the world. And that's true in the Christian world as well. That just, if you disagree with a position, you should always just pause and ask yourself, have I heard someone who holds this position and loves Jesus defend it? And if the answer to that is no, then you probably should just assume <laughs> that you probably don't actually have a very good opinion or a very nuanced, thoughtful way of engaging with that position. Then you can do your hot take. Then you can take them down. Then you can burn them to the ground. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you said that, not me. <laughs> hey, that's a good place to stop, Eric. Good discussion. A lot of musing. Uh, let us know what you think about this topic. We'd love to have you comment on one of our posts uh, online on uh, Instagram or wherever it may be. But we end our shows talking about what's good, what's true, what's beautiful. And we like to not just talk about ideas and content here, but also our life experiences. And it is Eric's turn today. So Eric, what has been good for you? Great. It's been a while since we've done music recommendations. And something that I think I can especially be bad at is actually recommending good Christian artists. Because I think both you and I like to listen to really diverse music and pursue interesting songwriting. And we both were musicians back in the day. But there are certain Christian artists that are really good for the soul. And I want to recommend a couple that aren't as well known, I feel like, as I interact with people that I return to regularly and have been reminded of again in the last few weeks for both of them. So the first person that I want to recommend is Jess Ray. Jess Ray does some worship music and also some really good personal music and songwriting. She's also half of a group called Mission House. So if you like her, you can also go listen to them which does worship music. And I'm just going to play a clip from a song by her called Runaway. Even if you run away from me Over the mountains, through the valleys I will not rest but search east and west To bring you back with me Even if you sail away I will move again like the mighty wind and blow you back to me. I'm gonna move. So that's Jess Ray. And then the other artist that I want to recommend is Chris Ransima. He's another really good songwriter. I have some of his stuff on vinyl, which is especially nice to break out. Side note, Jess Ray, in the like 0.1% chance that you would ever hear this, you should put stuff out on vinyl in a place that I could get it. But. He's someone that several of his songs have really touched me, but he in particular, I remember there was a song a couple years ago I heard by him called How to Be Yours that just really just met me in a moment that really just was helpful and broke my heart in some good ways. So I'm going to play a little bit of that song. I still act like an orphan, I guess. In my heart, heart breaks to confess. That even while you hold me as I cry on the floor, I still don't know how to be yours. 
And that is Chris Renzema, How to Be Yours. Gray, do you know either of these artists? I do know who they are. I have not been a avid listener. I have listened to maybe a track or two from each of them. Yeah, no, I, I'd recommend you you check them out. And they fit. Both of us are suckers for like good songwriting and acoustic guitars and stuff, too. So they'll scratch that itch for you as well, hopefully. Awesome. Can't wait to dive in. All right, friends, with all of that said, thanks again for joining us here on Simply Faithful. It has been good to have you with us. We'd encourage you to continue this conversation outside of the podcast, to talk with friends about it, to let it be something that just continues to percolate, especially as you maybe today think about dialoguing with and living in unity with people that you disagree with. But you can't disagree with us. Just take everything that we say and believe it. Otherwise, you're being harmful to the church. I always tell my kids that everybody has opinions, and it just so happens that mine are the right ones. (laughs) Thank you, friends. We'll see you next time. This has been Simply Faithful.